On this very day, one year ago, January 31st, 2018, and here I am, standing in the commemorative courtyard at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, just near the Pool of Reflection. I'm listening to the murmur of hundreds of voices all around me and the occasional cocky screeching overhead. Everything looks and sounds and feels vivid. I'm waiting here to place a wreath in the last post ceremony to commemorate the fall of my great uncle during World War I, Richard Bailey Spencer. Enlisting underage and under the pseudonym of Charles, Private Spencer 5218, 14th Infantry Battalion, AIF, was killed in Belgium on the Western Front on this day exactly 100 years ago, January 31st, 1918. And I've come a really long way to be here to this auspicious place for this once in a lifetime moment. It's a pilgrimage that's taken me halfway around the world. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys. The memorial's last post ceremony will begin in a few minutes. Hanging on to my wreath for dear life. In the long shadows of the late afternoon, I look at the people standing next to me, to the left, to the right, also holding their reeds. And from the looks on their faces, their ancestors are front and centre in their hearts and minds too. Squinting up now, I see hundreds of people crowding into the cloisters. On the walls behind them are the 102,000 names of people who, just like Richard, died serving this country. And if you listen, you can hear their stories in the silence. Everyone's come from somewhere to be here, and it occurs to me that maybe we're all pilgrims together, gathering from near and far to share this intentional moment of remembering. Tonight we'll read the story behind just one of those on the Roll of Honour. But first, we present a lament, Flowers of the Forest. Wreaths and floral tributes will now be laid at the base of the pool of reflection. Sensing I might be a bit overwhelmed by the moment, Roz, the wreath orderly, smiles at me kindly. I'm not holding back tears very well. Because on top of all of this, I'm not only thinking about Richie and his young life snuffed out in a terrible, violent instant on the Eep salient, I'm also thinking about all of them, the four other Bailey Spencer brothers who fought in World Wars for Australia. I'm also reflecting on their lives, their stories, descendants, families, also shaped by times of war. But to be really honest with you, I'm mostly thinking about Bob, my 82-year-old dad back in Victoria, and Bob's dad, my grandfather, Corporal Harry Spencer, VX 1113, 2nd AIF, 6th Division, Prisoner of War. That's really where this story begins. Yes, we forget. Yes. 
So let me tell you a little something about Harry. My name is Megan Spencer and Corporal Henry James Bailey Spencer, or Harry as he was known, was my grandfather. Harry was born in 1910 in Elphington, a working class suburb of Melbourne. And after battling serious ill health for the last decade or so of his life, Harry died in 1987 at Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital. The last survivor of 13 children, 10 boys and 3 girls, born between 1897 and 1917, Harry was also the last of the five Bailey Spencer brothers who served in the Australian Armed Forces. Harry's eldest brother Richard, who he idolised and for whom I laid the wreath at the memorial, was born in 1899 and in the final year of World War I, just four days shy of his 19th birthday, Richard's killed by a flying German artillery shell. And you'll hear more about him in a later episode. Richard's twin brother, Huey, enlists shortly after him. Hugh's also underage and uses a false name, so for the second time, their big sister, Queenie, forges the parental signature. Assigned to the 7th Infantry Battalion, Hugh, most likely wounded, catches his death on the front line in Belgium and he's hospitalised with severe pneumonia. Shipped to England and then repatriated to Australia just weeks before his twin is killed, he doesn't find out Richard's fate for months. Huey becomes a career soldier serving as a captain in World War II and from what my family has told me, he also served as a field artillery trainer post-World War II in Queensland. Born in 1905, Harry's older brother William, or Bill, enlists at 14 as a boy recruit in the Royal Australian Navy. Bill sees 26 years of service, and in 1942, he's one of the Navy divers who salvages the destroyed Japanese mini-subs from the bottom of Sydney Harbour. The night of May the 31st, Japanese midget submarines enter Sydney Harbour. There are good targets, but they miss them. A ferry naval depot ship is torpedoed. 19 men lose their lives. Four submarines are believed sunk, and the remains of two of them are recovered. Sydney and Newcastle shelled by submarines at night. Damage is slight, a few houses hit, and casualties are nil. But it brought the war close home. Up until his death in 1982, the sea and his extended family are his life. Then there's Nathaniel. A few months after the outbreak of World War II in 1940, at 28, a quarryman, Harry's feisty, funny swim champ of a younger brother, enlists as an engineer with the 2nd 8th Field Company, becoming a corporal. And closest to each other in age and as brothers, Harry and Matt wind up spending much of their war together. Here is the Prime Minister of Australia, the Right Honourable R.G. Menzies. Fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you officially that in consequence of a persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her and that as a result, Australia is also at war. No harder task 
can fall to the lot of a democratic leader than to make such an announcement. So now to Harry, Corporal Harry Spencer, the final of the Fighting Spencer Brothers. A 39er, Harry is one of the original volunteers who enlists to fight against Hitler's relentless German army at the outbreak of World War II. He's married to Lillian, my grandmother, and they have two small children at home. Daughter Margie, three, and son Bobby, four, their eldest, my father, who was born in 1935. The outbreak of war found Australia with few military assets beyond the tradition and experience of the first AIF. To the second AIF in October 1939 came the raw material of an army. Old diggers who'd forgotten much. Youngsters who knew nothing of war. Overnight, they all become soldiers, and with the dawn, a new army rises. Harry's eager to fight for king and country and to serve just like his brothers. So standing on his toes to pass the height test, Harry's accepted into the second AIF. In the first, Huey had worn the original 7th Battalion Mud Over Blood unit patch. To honour the service of his older brother, Harry is assigned to the 2nd 7th Australian Infantry Battalion, and he's extremely proud. There's purpose in their step and power in the swing of their arms. A river of men and they're headed for the sea. No one yet realises how powerful is the new German battle technique, how unprepared the Allies are to meet it. The men realise for the first time that they're part of a great common enterprise. As they sail the route the first AIF had taken, they feel the hand of its tradition on their shoulders. With each new day, a closer comradeship develops. At sea, the ties that linked them to the old civilian world are broken. After training at Puckapunyal Army Base in Victoria, in April 1940, Harry ships with his unit to the Middle East as part of the Australian 6th Division and British Allied Forces. And so, in the fourth month of war, the vanguard of the 6th Division sails, little knowing what the next four years will bring. The 2nd 7th fights in the successful battles of Bardia and Tobruk. Thousands of Italian soldiers are taken prisoner. And so they provide the greatest single haul of prisoners in British history. 44,868 captured or killed. The Italians have been smashed by courage and a bold plan. The 6th Division has shown that it can carry on the record of the first AIM. But then, in the early days of April 1941, most of the 6th Division is withdrawn from North Africa and sent to defend Greece from imminent German invasion. And 58,000 British and Anzac troops are safely landed near Athens. In the second official designation of the Anzac Corps, the 2nd 7th takes part in what's described on the War Memorials website as the ill-planned, disastrous and short Greek campaign. Hitler's bombers strike hard and often. Although the Allies fight well and with great determination, they're soon overwhelmed by the German forces. (laughs) 
After a tortuous evacuation by sea from Greece around Anzac Day 1941, most of the Second Seventh, including Harry, go on to fight in the Battle of Crete. On May the 20th, 1941, von Kesselrig launches the attack with two airborne divisions and a thousand aircraft. British and Anzac troops are waiting for them, fully equipped after their escape from Greece and unprotected from the air. The Germans lose hundreds of aircraft, thousands of men, but Crete falls. After 12 days of brutal fighting with heavy losses, dwindling rations, scarce ammunition, negligible air cover and a navy that had been severely tested, at breaking point the Allies surrender. Crete is now under Nazi occupation. In the rearguard, left on the island during this ill-fated campaign, along with his brother Nathaniel and thousands of other Australian soldiers, on June 1st, 1941, it's Harry who's taken prisoner of war now by the German army. Instantly, from a whisper to a bang, Harry goes from Allied soldier to Allied POW, spending the next four years in as many prison camps. Lil, Margaret and Bob have no idea when or whether they'll see him again. Recovered in early May 1945 on the road during a forced march, Harry survives the ordeal and returns to Australia in July. As his epic, handwritten memoir reveals, becoming a POW changes the shape of his war and his life forever, the intergenerational ripple effects of which are still felt to this day. He'd participated in the theatre of war, he'd seen death and atrocity close up, the uncertainty, constant movement and emotional and physical hardships of being a prisoner left scars. Coming from poverty, poor health and a huge family, you might consider Harry a hard man before he left for war. When he returns home, in many ways he's even harder. He almost certainly has PTSD or war nerves, as they were called back then, for years finding it hard to settle back into family, civilian and work life. It takes a toll on his marriage and close relationships. Like so many soldiers of the time, he rarely spoke of what happened. And like so many POWs of the day, he was effectively silenced. Throughout the world, throngs of people hailed the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland. Years full of suffering and death and sacrifice. You might be thinking, well, Harry's war story may not seem that different to those of the thousands of other men and women who've served in wars for Australia, nor the 36,000 other Australians taken prisoner in overseas conflicts. And as a younger person, it's a story that I wasn't particularly interested in either, I'm sad to say. Coming of age in the anti-nuke, educated, economic rationalist Australia of the 1980s, I didn't want to hear about war. I wanted to protest against it. I don't often recall Harry being very grandfatherly, more the constant fight between him and the world. He seemed difficult 
and I never understood why. Although he softened towards the end of his life, unfortunately by then we weren't much in each other's lives. But now at 52 years of age, my heart is now filled with compassion for Harry. Empathy has brought about understanding, love. Imbibing Harry's personal war memoir and having recently lived in what was the country of his internment, Germany, something in me stirred. And watching at close range the re-emergence of extremist views in Europe, the kind that led to the conflict in which he'd fought 70 years earlier, I kept thinking about him while I was living there and wondering what he'd been through. My mother, dad, and my dinky. Hang on, who's that? That's my mother. Auntie Auntie Lil, do you? Harry's wife, dad's mum. Bob, she's the one that lived with um, Lorna. Is that right? Auntie May. Yeah. During the war. During the war. We should live with Auntie May. And we'd bother with Auntie May during the war. So on a visit home to Australia, at a family reunion, listening to my dad talk about the war experiences of our ancestors, other kin as well, I realised just how present the war still is for my family. Both world wars. Have you seen any photos, Dad, that you haven't seen before? I've seen that. What's it like for you looking at this stuff, Dad? What do you feel? Oh, nothing much, yeah. How has it taken me this long to notice. I also realised that the great tragedy would be to not know what Harry went through, to forget what he went through, what the world went through, and what many still go through. So on returning to Berlin, where I'd be living for another nine months, I embark on a journey of historical empathy, to walk a mile in Harry's shoes and visit the sites of his suffering. And while I'm going about that, I also decide to make a podcast about it. With Harry as my guide, the project takes me across land and sea into two world wars, three generations, and precarious family memory and genealogy. With ears wide open, I speak to historians, authors, battlefield guides, serving members, custodians of culture, relatives near and far, warfield pilgrims, and to many of you who, like me, are also seeking traces of your own kin and trying to make sense of it all. I also find myself asking some of the big questions around our time-honoured tradition and practice of remembrance and the intentions behind it. Can remembrance keep the peace? So I start with Harry's story and see where it leads me. Is this the first time I've interviewed you? Yes. Is it weird? Don't know yet. So this is me interviewing my dad, Bob Spencer, Harry's eldest son, Harry and Lillian, my grandparents, had three more children after the war. One boy, then twin girls, making five kids altogether. Now 83 in 2019, Dad is the eldest of the three siblings who are still alive. So, Dad, this 
photograph of you when you were a little kid and Harry, your dad, my granddad. Pre-war. Yeah, tell me a little bit about it. Don't know much about it at all, other than that we discovered it amongst dad's memoirs uh, and mother's for that matter, years ago. And it's, it's a photo of you at how old? About four, five, yeah. before we went to the war. And where are you? I think that's in um, Burke Street. Because there's a tram in the yeah. background, is it, in, in Melbourne? And when you see that photo, what does it make you feel? Oh, typical, typical father and son prior World War too, because um, Dad never held my hand again, to my knowledge, other than shaking hands on a celebratory occasion. So, so before he went to World War Two, did he used to hold your hand walking down the street? Well, that's, that, that's the only way one I've ever seen, but presumably he did. I think fathers did in those days. And, and you're wearing a little jersey and a little tie. Your dad's in a three-piece suit. You've got special shoes on, so you must have been off to town. And short pants. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you reckon you might have been doing on this trip into Melbourne? Oh, just... Dad going to town, he's smoking a cigarette I see as well, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I just probably going to town for a, a visit to him. Might have been going to enlist, you never know. Mm. So do you remember what he was like before he went to war? Like, how old are you in this, four or four, six? Four. four. So this, if this is 39, then... One, four. Yeah, four. So do you have memories of him from then? Never. Other than going up to Puckapundal, Mum taking my sister, Margaret, and I up there. That would be the only time. I don't even re- remember him going to war. Oh, really? No. Oh. So do you have any memories when Harry went to war? Do you have any memories during that time he was away? No, only the fact that I... Uh, which I think you've got a copy of the letter I wrote him. Yeah. It's about all. All I can remember was that I was crook. I was... Forget what it was now. But... Dear Daddy, I'm being a good boy. I think I better tell Daddy I've been in hospital, but I'm better now. I put all the kisses around the top from Bobby. That's the letter my five year old dad, Bob, writes to Harry when he's stationed in Palestine in late 1940. It's been six months since Harry's seen his firstborn. It will be four years before he can receive another letter from him. It's a few months before deployment to Greece. Harry's turned 30 now. He's in good spirits, fit, training, seeing the sights and going on patrol with his unit. Australians who fought in World War I also loom large in the region. No doubt Harry's brother Richard is on his mind when he writes this in his memoir. We saw the cemetery at Beersheba, containing the many graves of Australians who fell in the 1914-18 war. Long marches were done in the Sumsum Valley too. When we were digging slit trenches in the sandy soil, we often found the remains of bayonets, rifles, dixies and shovels left behind from the 14-18 show. It's also where he finds out that his father has died via telegram. There was a call of mail up. I was lucky enough to get some letters from home, also two telegrams. The first of these told of my father being hit by a motor car and being dangerously ill. The second told of him passing away. 
He died on the first anniversary of the war, the 3rd of September 1940, at 73 years of age. Soon, there will be more tragedy. The AIF goes to Greece with high hope to fight for a real cause against the real enemy. The battle in North Africa was not yet won, and at the time, many considered the decision to send Allied troops to defend Greece in 1941 a mistake. Hitler, frustrated by the Italians' inability to finish the job, assembles a devastating force to finally take Greece and then the strategic island of Crete. May 18, planes came continuously to destroy the AA batteries. May 19, one day before invasion, German air superiority was complete. An army without a single plane faced an airborne, air-supported army for the first time in history. On Crete, the Allies throw everything they have at the swiftly advancing Germans, but again, they're under-resourced and overrun. At breaking point, the Australian soldiers of the rearguard, including Harry's 2nd 7th and Nat's 2nd 8th, find themselves on the southern beaches of Svakia. Over the previous four nights, 10,000 Allied troops have been evacuated from Crete. But now, the last of the evacuation vessels is about to sail. There will be no more. 15,000 Allied troops are left. The moment of surrender is upon them. They're given the choice to either surrender or to take their chances and go into hiding on the island and hope to be rescued later. Two hundred and seventy-four Australians are killed fighting on Crete, five hundred and seven are wounded, and three thousand one hundred and two are taken prisoner. Harry and Nat are two of them. From a whisper to a bang. Crete is where my grandfather's prisoner of war story begins. Professor Peter Monteith teaches history at Flinders University in Adelaide with a particular interest in war and captivity. He's written books POW, Australian Prisoners of War in Hitler's Reich, and Escape Artist, The Incredible Second World War of Johnny Peck. Now, like Harry, Johnny was also in the second seventh, but unlike Harry, he chose to head for the hills at the moment of surrender. A commanding officer told us to smash our rifles on the stones and throw them away. He also said that those who wanted to go off on their own should do so, as very quickly we would be prisoners of war. It was such a momentous decision to stay or to go. Yeah, it is a really interesting question. Those decisions that they made were were really fateful. Uh, And it's difficult to put yourselves in their place, but... Gosh, for those men of the the second seventh, they were they were on the beach. The, you know, the the barges were there, and uh, they just happened to be there that little bit too late. Because had they got onto the barges, they would have been taken to Egypt. They would have ended up fighting in the war in the Pacific. Uh, who knows how that might have ended up for them? Um, 
in some ways maybe they were lucky uh, depending on what happened in Europe but for, for many of them yeah the, there were those who um, were prepared to risk everything and not really know what the future would hold and then uh, others uh, I'm sure in lots of cases they were just so exhausted by that point that they didn't really think of that as a viable option and they they knew, especially the second, seventh, that the, the Germans were on their heels um, and that really everything was stacked against them. Peter says that the rearguard played a pivotal role in the Allies' evacuation from Crete. It was about winning time and... To hold the Germans off uh, so that others would have that opportunity to um, be evacuated. At the same time, they didn't want to engage too heavily with the Germans because if they did that then they might well have become victims very quickly given the superior firepower that that the Germans had. So it was a very tricky operation to perform and it seems that the the second seventh did it really well but as I understand it the, the guarantee that had been given to them was that once they themselves got as far as uh, Svakia and then as combat forces they would have preference uh, when it came to boarding the barges that would take them out to the Royal Navy vessels. But such was the state of confusion by that time that that's not what eventuated. So I think for many of them the, the realisation must have been a very sobering one when they were told that the last of the barges had gone, they were presented with a dilemma that many, I think, wouldn't have really thought through in great detail. And lots of men say that, that um, in advance of battle, in advance of war, becoming a POW isn't normally one of the things that you think about. Dr Lachlan Grant is a senior historian at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. His interests also include the prisoner of war experience and Australia's Second World War in Europe. He co-edited and contributed to Beyond Surrender, Australian Prisoners of War in the 20th Century. And I invite him to put us in the mind of Harry at that moment of surrender. When you read accounts of prisoners and they talk about the moment of capture, they describe it as a very surreal sort of experience because often they've been in battle for, for days, sometimes months up to that point, weeks, months, and the cacophony of battle, the stress, the tension of battle, and all of a sudden it's over and they don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, they don't know how the guards are going to treat them. Uh, and sometimes that point of capture is the most dangerous time too because sometimes that's when the real mistreatment happens of prisoners. Um, if you have enemy soldiers, who, you know, might beat and in, in some places um, executions take place. There's always this great tension and anxiety for the prisoners at that very moment even though the, there's a, a sense of relief because the battle, the fighting's finished but they also don't know what's going to happen and that's one of the things that is really tough for the prisoner in their day-to-day life is that they never know where what's going to happen in the next day they don't know what camp they're going to be sent to. they don't know where they're going to be working they don't know once they're in germany if the um, uh, allies are, are going to uh, bomb their the factory they're working in the next day um there's there's this great anxiety through um, a prisoner's life because they're not in control of everything around them as you know we enjoy in our the freedoms we live in our lifestyle so they they're essentially stripped of their freedoms and liberties for a four-year period and that anxiety for for a long period of time and that's one of the issues that affected prisoners in in the years after the war as well peter monteith continues then the uh, the, the german forces arrive there is a bit of a delay there so there, there must have been some hours of 
anxiety, they would have been exhausted because uh, if you know Crete at all, it's extremely mountainous rocky the feat of getting to Sfakia um from on your feet feet (laughs) from the the north coast that was uh, a feat of endurance by itself through all of that those men in the second seventh they've been fighting as well so so fighting dealing with very tricky terrain not having enough to eat tormented by thirst is a very common story um so they'd been through all of that, they would have been absolutely exhausted, uh, probably demoralised that, that all of that fighting in the end had still left them in this position where they were, in effect, stranded on the island. So that would have been the, 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 the awful starting point for them in that process. Dr Adrian Threlfall is a military historian and a member of the education team at Melbourne's Shrine of Remembrance. A former infantryman himself in the Australian Army Reserve, he's also an expert on the Battle of Crete. He co-wrote a graphic novel about it too and one of the Second Seventh's great warriors, Gunditjmara man Reginald Saunders. Adrian says that the Battle of Crete is one of the hardest fought by Australian soldiers at that time and an Anzac battle that few Australians know about. Adrian, if the Anzac conflict in Gallipoli in World War One was the so-called, as it has been called before, the birth of a nation for Australia, what was the Anzac conflict in Crete then? Maybe a bloodbath might be too strong a word to use, but it was arguably one of the, the bravest battles, but also one that was not as well generaled as it should have been. The whole campaign in in both Greece and then in Crete um, were doomed to failure from the start. The military commanders privately admitted that amongst themselves. The political and strategic decisions were made that we should not and could not let down an ally. Uh, There was not enough air support, not enough air cover, um, and many thousands of Australians and New Zealanders and and British forces were captured both in Greece uh, and in Crete. So this was the second official formation of the Anzacs, wasn't it? True. And it's really, in the Second World War, it's really the only time that the Anzacs fight together. They do that, uh, the the initial, uh, the Anzac Corps serves obviously in the First World War, but really for the formation that serves in Greece and in Crete is is the Anzac Corps reborn. We we don't really remember that, do we? No, we don't. Possibly you could argue it's, it's because it is a defeat. It, it's an exceptionally brave defeat, but it was doomed from the start. And there is, uh, there was for some many of those Australians who served uh, in Greece and Crete some bitterness um, that they were let down, um, that they were not properly supported, particularly with air support. They always regarded the Navy as exceptionally brave and, and the Royal Navy and the Royal Australian Navy lost uh, nearly two dozen ships. Um, because they were, they were bombed mercilessly, weren't they, while they were trying to evacuate people, not only from mainland Greece, but from Crete. Yes, yep. Um, yeah, does, or the 2nd, 7th Australian Infantry Battalion uh, was on one of those ships, the Costa Rica, which was sunk uh, on, the, on the journey between Greece and Crete. Thankfully, it sunk very slowly and two British destroyers evacuated the whole of the battalion. I think only one man was lost uh, in the sinking of that, that transport ship, that troop ship. Um, but yes, throughout the, the, the naval evacuation from Greece to Crete and then later on from Crete back to Egypt, dozens of, uh, of, of allied ships, Australian and British ships, were sunk and thousands and thousands of, of sailors died, uh, desperately trying to save the, save the army. Um, um, but this was predicted prior to that. So the, I guess the, the, the anger of, of Australians and, and, and British too uh, was, was towards their own 
their own political masters um, for, for making these decisions that were, were doomed to failure from the outset. Was it our Dunkirk, Crete? Dunkirk's generally told as such a positive story, uh, I suppose, and I mean, there is a positive side to Crete. The Australians did fight well. Um, they fought very well at Retamo. They held the airfield there. They did well at those at Heraklion. So in terms of military performance, there was nothing for the Australians or indeed the others to be ashamed of. It'll all, always be a matter of some controversy. Why was it that they didn't manage to save the island? And of course, as with Dunkirk, there was an evacuation, but not on the same scale and with that harsh reality that lots were left behind. And that meant that for almost all of them, um, they then spent the rest of their wars in, in German captivity. Adrian says that the defeat in Greece and Crete had a devastating effect on the Army's 6th Division. Nearly 2,000 Australians were captured in Greece and over 3,000 were captured in Crete. So it's a third of the, the 6th Australian Division was captured. And I think all of them believed if they had been given an opportunity to fight, I guess maybe the term would have been back then, man on man, that they would have succeeded. And that the reason they ended up being captured was not down to their performance, so from higher authority. So lack of air cover and lack of, of really strategic planning and political planning from above meant that they were the ones who ended up in a prison camp because clearly it was not the, not the generals and not Winston Churchill who ended up in a prisoner of war camp for four years. Do you think it's fair to say that they were sacrificial lambs in a sense? People have said that, uh, yeah, it was one, this was one of Winston Churchill's worst uh, decisions uh, in the war particularly the 2nd 7th Battalion, who were eventually captured, uh, possibly the most disappointed. When they're retreating bound down through Greece, it is basically marching backwards, uh, returning to, to the evacuation beaches and being bombed. Crete at least gave them the opportunity to stand and fight. Yes, eventually it was a defeat. Um, only lasts for about a, a week and a half. But Crete is the end of the German paratrooper forces. Um, they lose so many thousands of, of their own troops, paratroopers and glider troops, that Hitler never deploys them as glider troops and airborne forces again. They fight on the ground, obviously, in the, in the Russian campaign and in the Italian campaign. But I think many of the Australians and New Zealanders found it almost a relief. Yes, they were being bombed and attacked, but at least they finally got the f chance to fight back once those German paratroopers started coming down. And it was, it was a very brutal uh, battle, battle on Crete. Many of the Germans were killed in their paratroops before they actually hit the ground. Many of them uh, were killed before they had the opportunity to seize their canisters. Most of the German arms uh, arrived under parachutes, same as the men, men did themselves. And you then had to get out of your parachute and run over to these large containers um, and, and take your weapons out then. Um, funnily enough, the Australians and New Zealanders killed them before they could do that. To us today, that might seem unfair or brutal. You're killing unarmed men. They were armed with sidearms. They had pistols, um, but they couldn't get to their machine guns and their rifles. But why would you give them the opportunity to get that? You're a soldier. Um, they're going to kill you. You've been bombed for days and weeks on end. You finally get to release some of that pent-up anger and hatred and bitterness at these people who've been killing you and you watching them kill civilians and that uh, for many of the Australians and the New Zealanders and probably all of the Allied soldiers witnessing German and Italian bombers bombing and, and destroying Greek cities and, and Cretan cities and killing men, women and civilian men, women and children caused great bitterness and anger. This was the Nazi war machine in action. It, it wasn't soldiers fighting soldiers. 
much of the combat in, in the North African desert is, is kind of regarded as more, maybe more gentlemanly, but it is basically military personnel against other military personnel. Whereas in Greece and in Crete, um, civilians are being killed in their thousands. And the Australians, even though they're not there for a long time, do make some friendships with Cretan civilians and with Greek civilians. And then they watch them be slaughtered um, by these, these planes dropping bombs all, all, all over the place. And so it is a brutal, brutal fight. Cretan civilians also took up arms against the Nazi invasion and assisted Allied soldiers hiding on the island for the next four years. Harry and his brother Nathaniel were taken prisoner together. And this is what I found in Nat's diary when I went through the family archive. He wrote it when he was on Crete. To the women of Greece who, when they had but little themselves, gave us bread and precious water, who smiled through their tears at British soldiers and gave us fortitude. Let our gratitude be forever shown. So with very little food or water, Allied POWs were marched back the way they came, across the mountains and put into makeshift holding pens in the north. Lachlan takes up the story. And for the first six weeks or so in Crete, those prisoners were put in a very large pen, a large compound. Of course, the Germans had invaded the island of Crete. There wasn't a camps or prisoner of war camps set up for the prisoners to go to. So 15,000 British, Australian, New Zealanders got put into this very large pen. There was no sanitary conditions, uh, no drains had been dug. Um, you know, basic facilities were, were non-existent. So it was a pretty, um, pretty bleak existence, open to the hot sun and the elements. And of course, um, disease in these camps and in the next camp they experienced at Salonika in uh, Greece were, were quite rife. Diseases such as uh, dysentery, uh, beriberi, uh, which is a vitamin deficiency, um, and they suffer from malaria as well. And these are quite important because these are sort of diseases that we associate with the prison of war experience in Asia, but the prisoners in, um, in Europe were, were suffering from these in, the, in those first few months after capture as well. And then after that long period, they're sent to camps in Germany by train from Salonika in Greece, and this is quite a terrible ordeal as well. The worst times in a prisoner's life are when they're travelling, you know, by ship or by rail or on long marches, and in this rail journey, they were crammed into cattle wagons, uh, about 55 or 60 prisoners per wagon, and the, if Germans were using the wagons, they'd normally put about 40 um, soldiers in, in a wagon. So absolutely crammed into these wagons from Salonika in southern Europe to uh, camps in central Germany or Poland, um, it could take up to 12 days. So it's quite an awful journey, not much food along the way, not many stops. Um, and again, conditions are uh, really harsh and, and disease was quite rife by the time that they had arrived in, in these more permanent camps in, in Poland and Germany. The Australian ex-prisoners of war memorial in Ballarat, Victoria, represents all Australians taken prisoner of war during the conflicts of the 20th century. Dedicated in 2004, 35,000 names are etched into a 130 metre long granite wall. Bailey Spencer brothers Nathaniel and Harry have their names recorded there. Their experience has public visibility, their stories, acknowledgement and a voice. But it wasn't like that when they first got back from World War II. Quite the opposite, in spite of everything they'd been through and their service for their country. Peter Monteith again. 
They had the experience, the Europeans, that many of them came back to Australia at about the same time that many of the former POWs from Japanese captivity were arriving home and there seemed to be a a physical difference between the two. The, The Europeans, their war had finished some months earlier Physically, they'd recovered to some extent, and yet they arrived in Australia just as these emaciated figures from um, Japanese captivity were returning. And so they confronted that perception that they had had it easy, and and that, of course, didn't encourage them to speak about their experiences. Um, Generally, the perception was that they they were required to just get on with, with things. Lachlan Grant agrees. I think one of the sad aspects of the prisoner of the German story is that they, they do come home around the time that the war in the Pacific finishes and then Australians are visually seeing the horrible conditions that the prisoners of the Japanese lived through. So prisoners of uh, war in Germany always found it hard to talk about how hard their, their four years of captivity was as well. Yeah, I think it's true there was certainly a stigma a- attached to it and I think there was a, a certain assumption that if you're in the army then the, the role there is, is to fight and yet many of these men were put in positions where they... They couldn't. They were deprived of that opportunity if if that's what they wanted to be doing. I think in most cases their response was not to talk about it because there were those who had the the physical scars and in some ways they were easier to deal with than the mental scars. But probably I I think it's true to say that by not talking about it and suppressing it, that had longer-term consequences for their mental health. If I remember correctly, the divorce rates, for example, are one of the indicators that um, these men remained troubled for very long periods, for, for decades through to the end of their lives by that um, experience of, of captivity. Service number VX1113. Rank, Corporal. Name, H.B. Spencer. Name of sender, Mrs. Lillian Spencer, 24th of July, 1944. My dear Harry, I hope this letter soon gets to you, darling. As them will know, you'll be home with us once again. It's great, sweetheart, to think things are so near. You'll be pleased to know I've left Mays, and I know you'll like these friends of mine. They have a lovely home, and the children and I are very happy here. You'll like these people too, darling, I'm sure. It's nearly four and a half years since we've seen each other. I'm sure when we meet, things will be just the same as before you went away, dear. Bob's nine next month, and who knows? You may be seeing him soon. He's quite the little man now, and he's a really great kid. And Marky's keeping well, thank goodness. The poor kid's had a lot of trouble since you left, darling. I'm feeling okay now too. I hope you're feeling better and rid of your boils. They're very painful things. But never mind, dear. We'll fix those things for you when you're home with me once again. I think I'll love to spoil you when you get home, darling. As these years apart have dragged. Well, sweetheart, I must close now. Hoping to see you soon. Your loving and faithful wife, Lil. And Bob and Margie. So was it difficult when you were kids with your dad away and, and during the war? Like, were you, did you have enough to eat and all that sort yeah, of stuff? Yeah, we'd never know. 
never have, uh, would have realised what the war's about. So this is me interviewing my dad again, talking to him about what Harry was like when he got back from the war. So when your dad got back, what was it like after he got back? What was he like after he got he back? He was very sick. Um, not like nowadays where they have uh, pre, uh, post-war uh, traumas. None of that was recognised. Dad was a hard man from Boo's point of view and smoked because they never had to see cigarettes or beer for four years or five years virtually. No, he was a difficult person, very strict. He had a, uh, came back with a Luger pistol. <laughs> he threatened to kill himself one stage out at, when we were boarding out at Burwood. So he threatened to kill himself, did he? You remember yeah, that? He was feeling, he was not well. He was just, so he's down, you mean? Yeah, and he had a lot of mental problems, and I won't say mental. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emotional? Yeah, yeah. Which was caused by, I think, just being in captivity. He uh, was always getting medicine from the repatriation farm. I can remember our, remember our house in East Bentley at the top of the ladder with all these bottles of medicine. Mm. He wouldn't take them. And the doctor would prescribe them, but he wouldn't take them. Why wouldn't he take them? He's just an obstinate old bugger. <laughs> he says in another time he was being interview, interviewed by a doctor, a young man, who didn't agree the way Dad, Dad's comments about the, the war and Dad said you wouldn't know. And he went bang and knocked him in the mouth. Your dad knocked yeah. the doctor in the mouth? Yeah. Yeah. Knocked him over, walked out. Wow. And what about your mum? Like, when he came back, what was he like towards her, sort of after he got back and settled in a little bit? He's very um, demanding. You know, he wouldn't go to work unless the shirts were ironed. He would have to, mum would have to bring up and say Dad was sick or something. But mum had five children to look after, although mm. Margaret and I were looked after ourselves. I think it's not just he wasn't just like that. There's a lot of men that came back mm. that we were um, upset about different things. Some blokes went off, came home to find their wives had remarried. Mm. Uh, and that's mentioned in a lot of the prisoner war books. And did he talk about the war to no. you? Never. And why do you think that was? Like all other men that got captured, then 99% of them never spoke about the war. But he did talk to his friends about it, didn't he? Oh, yeah, but that's... They were all men that had been in the war. Never did he talk about the war. So from the eldest child to my auntie Delma now, Harry's youngest child, who was born in 1950, we're back at the family reunion and I've asked for her take on how she thinks Harry's prisoner of war experience affected the family. In your observations or experience, how do you think... Harry being in the war and a POW, how how do you think it affected him? Tremendously, tremendously. Imagine four years of question of survival and the adrenaline and how you would cope. Some men came back and never talked about the war and just had the ability to get on. But some men, it just so deeply traumatised them. He couldn't cope with relationships, whether that was his upbringing or being away, things going wrong about his family back home and relationships not going well. But he couldn't express emotions. But I think he'd seen so much. How can you not come back a very changed man psychologically? It must do damage. So 
Did your mum ever talk to you, Lil, his wife, did, did she ever talk to you about what it was like during that time when he was a prisoner of war? No, my older sister Margaret did. Mm-hmm. He and mum didn't have a good relationship and yet when she died he said how much he loved her. But I think being apart for... Well, he was apart nearly six years or maybe more and she wouldn't have wanted him to go away. Who wants their husband to leave them with children? at home. So I think all of that must have a huge effect. Mum's idea was if you kids weren't here I'd leave him. <laughs> because, you know, in, as a friend, an older friend used to say to me, your dad's got war neurosis, which is what we would call post-traumatic, post-traumatic stress, stress, yeah. stress syndrome. How can you go to war and not have post-traumatic stress? And of course, it wasn't acknowledged even by the government. And for those guys to get the government pension or the war service pension, they had to fight for it. They'd more than earned it. Delma says that Harry's children were also affected. Well, it shaped who we were, or who we are, the children of ex-prisoners or people that have born being away at war. It shapes who you are in your upbringing. So it, does, it doesn't just last for that um, generation. It, it flows through to your children because sometimes whatever our problems are aren't as bad as their problems were. So you don't have a voice. You keep quiet, you all hush. Don't upset Dad because you know he's been away at war or Dad's upset. You, you pick up the feel. So it squashes people for more than one generation. And my dad spent a lot of his time reading about World War II and becoming a, a quiet buff about it. What do you think that might be about? I don't know. I wonder if it's trying to find his place in his dad's heart, whether he felt abandoned and trying to catch up on that. And then, of course, dad... His dad was the era where you were sort of mid-Victorian era. You were brought up that you didn't show emotions. You didn't say, oh, I love your children. And yet when I had my children, he could say, oh, your mum would love your children. In other words, by proxy, you were saying how much he loved my children. And I'm sure he would have dearly loved to have been able to express that with his children. And dad didn't know how to show that. So I think all of that must have a huge effect. So what do you make of this project I'm doing, this personal project? Absolutely wonderful. Why? Why? (laughs) Because it's just a dear thing to do, a nice, kind, empathetic, family, nurturing thing to do. It joins all the family together and you get to know about the other people from it, which I think... Because I didn't want to know when I was young, but now I'm old, I want to know. And also to know, just to know each person's story. And you can empathise, you don't have to take it on, but you can empathise with what their lives were like and what they came back to and how the poor blokes couldn't express themselves. They weren't a man if they cried. Oh, heavens. You know, we're lucky these days you can have a good cry and... Even to a mate, the men can have a cry and the other guy most likely will put his hand on his shoulder and chat to him. They couldn't do that. They had to pretend they were strong and yet they were just hurting inside, I'm sure. So 
regret not being able to say to my dad, I'm trying to understand. Tell me so I can understand about your feelings. I won't fully understand, but I can listen and try. And when I think the only time you told us you loved us was on your deathbed, you said, God bless you all, I love you all. I was so pleased for him that he'd made peace within himself to be able to do that. But what a shame he couldn't do that earlier. My Auntie Delma remembering the very human cost of war, ending today's episode of From a Whisper to a Bang. And as the sun goes down on the centenary of the armistice, 100 years since the war to end all war, and the start of a peacetime that many believed would remain, perhaps the time is right in 2019 to again contemplate what peace, war and remembering mean to us. As a way to honour what our Harrys went through and what they gave up in order to create the peaceful present many of us now enjoy so that we not only never forget, but continue to remember well for the generations to come. Maybe it's come time again. Speaking today were Dr Adrian Threlfall, Professor Peter Monteith, Dr Lachlan Grant, my father Bob Spencer, Auntie Delma Calcagno, and cousin Joanne Whiteman. You also heard the voices of Finn Ellis, Heath Big, and Sienna Big. Next episode, we'll travel to Germany and visit two of the sites of Harry's internment 72 years after he was there and dive deeper into the prisoner of war experience back home in Australia after the war was over. From a Whisper to a Bang is produced and presented by Megan Spencer for the Australian War Memorial. Many thanks to everyone involved in today's episode and the team at the memorial. Music is by the talented Cretan Australian duo Zalurus White and you can find their music at zaluruswhite.com with additional music today by Jeremy Conlon, cooperblack.bandcamp.com For more details about From a Whisper to a Bang and this episode, visit the podcast portal at the Australian War Memorial website, awm.gov.au. Click on the podcasts link under the Learn menu on the main page. And thank you... For listening. Speak to you again next time. <laughs>